0: This is just a quick message to let you know that elucidations now has a blog check it out at lucian that's l-u-c-i-a-n lucian.uchicago.edu slash blogs slash elucidations check it out let us know what you think Welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman.
1: And I am Jamie Edwards.
0: With us today is Marco Malink, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the University of Chicago. And he's here to talk to us about modal syllogistic. Marco Malink, welcome.
2: Hello, Matt. Hi, (laughs) Jamie.
0: So I guess the first question that's going to be on everybody's minds is what is syllogistic?
2: Right. Right. Aristotle's syllogistic, basically, is um, the first system of formal logic in the history of philosophy. And it is basically a theory where Aristotle um, gives an account of valid deductive inferences. As such, it is similar to logical systems which we find in the 20th century also. But there is a crucial difference between Aristotle's syllogistic and logical systems which we find in the 20th century. And this is um, connected with the kinds of sentences which Aristotle considers in his syllogistic. So, in a syllogistic, Aristotle is mainly concerned with sentences such as every B is an A. So, for example, every man is an animal. And um, he studies inferences of the form like every C is a B every B is an A, therefore every C is an A. That's one of the basic inferences which Aristotle considers in his syllogistic. And he gives an account of which of these inferences which we can construct out of such sentences. I mean, he he also considers sentences of the type some B is an A or no B is an A. And he um, gives an account of which inferences which we can construct out of these sentences are valid and which of these inferences aren't valid.
0: Like, What would be an example of a valid inference and an example of an invalid inference?
2: Right, so um, an example of a valid inference is just the example which I just gave. Every C is a B, every B is an A, therefore every C is an A. And also a further example would be every C is a B, no B is an A, therefore no C is an A. And then Ertl also considers invalid, or he also says which of these inferences are invalid. So for example, if no C is a B and every B is an A, then it does not follow that no C is an A.
0: Okay, right, so we're talking about sort of different, these sort of like argument patterns, and these are sort of templates for building arguments out of actual sentences, you know, without Bs and Cs, but where we sort of plug stuff in wherever we have a C or wherever we have a B, wherever we have an A, so that every giraffe is a mammal, every mammal breathes, therefore every giraffe breathes or something. You know, we sort of abstract away from these argument patterns that have actual sentences in them to try to get to the more abstract form so that we can say anything that has this form will be a good argument.
2: That's right. That's perfectly right. One of the big differences between Aristotle's logistic and systems of logic, which we find in the 20th century, concerns, as I said, the syntax of his sentences. For Aristotle, the basic sentences consist of two terms and the third part which connects these two terms. For example, in the sentence, every B is an A consists of two terms namely B and A, an example would be man, animal, of these terms, and a third part which forms a sentence out of these two terms, and the third part would correspond to the words every and is. Aristotle himself actually doesn't say every B is an A, he rather says things like A belongs to all B, and in this way of saying things, this third element would correspond to all, to the phrase belongs to all. Aristotle considers these sentences, which have this tripartite syntax, consisting of two terms, which are of the same syntactic type and the third element as basic sentences. Whereas in 20th century logic, I mean, basically the Fregean logic, predicate logic, first order logic, the basic sentences consist just of two terms. They have a bipartite syntax consisting of a singular term and a general term. And these two terms, singular terms and general terms, are not of the same syntactic type. No singular term can take the place of a general term, and no general term can take the place of a singular term. They aren't of the same syntactic type, whereas for Aristotle, subject, the subject and the predicate of a sentence in his syllogistic theory are of the same syntactic type. Every subject of a sentence can also serve in principle as the predicate of a sentence. Every predicate can, in principle, serve also as the subject of a sentence.
0: So maybe to go back to the every man is an animal example, Aristotle would think of that sentence as really having three parts to it. Every man and animal. Uh, Whereas a modern logician would just think of that sentence as having two parts. and w- So what would the two parts be in every man is an animal?
2: All right, so in 20th century logic, um, this sentence every man is an animal, unlike for Aristotle, is not considered as a primitive sentence. Rather, it is considered as a complex sentence, which is built up from several primitive sentences. So as we said before, the primitive sentences in 20th century logic consist of just these two types, a singular term and a general term. So man and animal would be general terms. And singular terms are like Socrates and Matt, for example. And Aristotle's sentences are represented in 20th century logic as complex sentences. I mean, this is basically what Frege did in his Begriffsschrift. When he set up his Begriffsschrift, he also had to prove or to show how he can express Aristotle's sentences in his own Begriffsschrift. And he did this by saying, well, a sentence like every B is an A or every man is an animal, I'll express like this. I'll just say for every X, where X corresponds to singular terms, for every X, if X falls under man, then X also falls under the general term animal. So now this whole phrase corresponds to a complex sentence in 20th century logic, basically in Frege's Begriffsschrift. And so this is one of the big differences between Aristotle's logic and 20th century logic that for Aristotle, these quantified sentences, which he studies in his syllogistic, are primitive sentences, and for 20th century logic, they are complex sentences. Now, this isn't just a point about the syntax. I mean, it's, it's first of all a point about the syntax of sentences, but it also has implications for the semantic interpretation of these sentences.
1: So you've said that Frege redescribes Aristotle's sentences in some way, and this has consequences for how we understand Aristotle's sentences in the light of that, uh, some of which might be misleading. Uh, would you say something about this?
2: This is true. So when Frigge gives his redescription of Aristotle's sentences by saying, okay, every B is an A just means, or just should be expressed as a complex sentence of the form for every individual X, if X falls under B, then the individual X also falls under A. This syntactic description implies, unlike Aristotle's description, which on the face of it doesn't imply any, like, semantic interpretation of these sentences, at least not on the face of it, Frege's redescription description implies that the truth of these sentences depends solely on the individuals which fall under general terms. So, The truth of these sentences like every B is an A or every C is an A just depends on which individuals fall under the general terms B, A or C. Whenever we have two terms which have exactly the same set of individuals falling under them, we can replace the one term by the other term and the sentence still remains true or false whatever it was before. Now, the set of individuals which falls under a general term is often referred to as the extension of this term. And in this sense, Frigge's redescription of Aristotle's sentences implies an extensional semantics of Aristotle's sentences, because on his redescription, the truth of these sentences just depends on the set of individuals which fall under the general terms involved in them, i.e. the truth just depends on the set of individuals, i.e. it just depends on the extension of the terms involved. And in this sense, it implies an extensional semantics. And this is different from what we find in Aristotle himself, because Aristotle himself uh, does not really specify in any detail what the semantics of his sentences should be. And in particular, he does not explicitly state that we should give them an extensional interpretation. And in fact, there are some indications that Aristotle didn't think of his sentences or of the truth conditions of his sentences as being purely extensional in the sense just described.
0: Okay, so we have two different things that every man is an animal might mean. And Frege's account of what every man is an animal means is something like you go around to each individual man, and you check to see whether he's an animal. Is this guy an animal? Yes, he is. Is that guy an animal? Yes, he is. And then if, after you've done that, they all turn out to be animals, then the sentence, every man is an animal, is true. Whereas it seems like on Aristotle's understanding of the sentence, every man is an animal, what it takes for that sentence to be true maybe isn't necessarily just about what's the case with a whole bunch of individuals. Maybe it's more about something else maybe the concepts man and animal or maybe some other sort of thing?
2: I think so. Yeah. Um, yeah. Unfortunately Aristotle himself does not really describe in any detail what the semantics of his sentences is, I mean what their truth conditions are, but there are some indications which show or which seem to suggest at least that he did not have in mind a purely extensional interpretation, which rather suggest that he thought of their truth conditions as somehow being based on his theory of predication. So, for example, um, one of the basic, maybe, principles of Aristotle's theory of predication is, uh, I mean, it relies on a distinction between substances and non-substances. like Terms like man or animal, they in some way correspond to substances, they in some way signify a substance, whereas terms like Green or walking, moving, uh, these correspond in some way to non-substances. And one of his basic principles is that substances cannot be predicated of non-substances, rather non-substances are predicated of substances. And it seems like in his syllogistic Aristotle adheres in some way to this principle, uh, namely It is striking that when we look at the concrete examples of sentences of the type every B is an A, which Aristotle gives in his syllogistic, we'll find that very often Aristotle gives examples where the subject term is a substance term, like man, and the predicate of the sentence is a non-substance term, like every man is walking. This kind of example we find very often in Aristotle. But what we don't find in his syllogistic are examples where the subject term is a non-substance and the predicate term is a substance. So, I mean, Aristotle does not give examples of the type everything which is walking is a man. And even we don't find examples of the kind everything walking is an en- animal. Uh, So we don't find examples of the type everything walking is an animal, um, even though from the extensional point of view they are obviously true because every individual which falls under the term walking also falls under the term animal. So the extension of the first term walking is a subset of the extension of the second term animal. So from Frege's point of view this sentence is perfectly true. And so we would expect, if this were Aristotle's account of the semantics of his sentences, we would expect Aristotle to use actually these sentences. But he doesn't do it. Now, of course, Aristotle may have had all sorts of reasons not to use these sentences, but I think there are reasons to think that the reason why he doesn't use them is that he thinks of his sentences as somehow being tied to his more metaphysical theory of predication which relies on the contrast between substances and non-substances and in which there are no predications where a substance is predicated of a non-substance.
1: Would you say something more about the significance of this result for Aristotle? Because one of the things we're taught when we study logic is that it tracks what follows formally from one thing to the next. It's the formal features that follow. And it doesn't so much matter the natures of the A's or the B's. It just matters that the relations follow logically. But what you're describing is that Aristotle limits his use of syllogism to a metaphysical commitment to certain things are substances, certain things are only predicates.
2: Okay. Well, the question which you just asked, I mean, this question is a difficult question, I think, and part of the difficulty is that it's not prima facie, at least clear, what it means to say that logic is formal. So there are senses, for example, the sense which you just described, in which, given what I said, Aristotle's syllogistic would not be formal because in some uh, way it is um, sensitive to the distinction between substance terms, for example, and between non-substance terms. Whereas one might expect that for some reasons a purely formal logic should not be sensitive to such metaphysical distinction. But there are also senses in which Aristotle's logic, as I see it, is still formal even if it is sensitive to the contrast between substance terms and non-substance terms. Namely, As I see it, this distinction is built into the truth conditions of his sentences. So any pattern of inference which is valid will still be valid whichever term we put into the placeholders A, B, and C. It's just that in some cases, which we, given like Frege's account of these sentences, we might expect to be true, they in fact aren't true. So, for example, a sentence like, everything walking is an animal, this example we would expect to be true, maybe, but given what I said, and if this is true, these sentences aren't in fact true. But still, any pattern of inference in which such a sentence occurs, either as a premise or as the conclusion, is still valid. So, in this sense, Aristotle's logic, then, is still formal. It's not that his, like, arguments are just valid if we put in substance terms in certain places. They're still valid uh, whichever terms we choose, and in this sense, it's still formal. It's just that the truth conditions of these sentences don't correspond exactly to what we might expect them to be from the Freakian point of view.
0: Okay, so we've got this distinction between substance terms and non-substance terms and you know so the substance terms would be like man whale giraffe that kind of stuff and then the non-substance terms maybe intuitively it seems like these are properties that something might happen to have by coincidence but not a property that something has because of the kind of thing that it is so then these non-substance terms they would be like being green walking you know these are properties that you might happen to have but don't sort of define what you are as it were so What we seem to be concluding from the fact that Aristotle only says things like every man is walking, but not every walking thing is a man, the conclusion we want to draw from that possibly is that Aristotle thought saying every A is a B isn't just saying something about whether all the A's happen to be B's, but something a little more than that, something like being a B is part of what it is to be an A, maybe.
2: I think this is not exactly the conclusion which I want to draw from it, because Aristotle does use examples of the kind, every man is walking, or even um, every man is white, Uh, that's also an example which Aristotle sometimes uses. And in these cases, I mean, it's obvious that um, walking is not part of what it is to be a man, so he does accept purely accidental predications. It's rather that the truth conditions of the senses are restricted in such a way that they don't depend solely on the extension of the terms involved, i.e. on the set of individuals which fall under the terms involved. And in this sense, the conclusion which I want to draw from it is that the semantics of Aristotle's syllogistic is a non-extension, or should be taken to be a non-extensional semantics. So could you say
1: a little something about the significance of Aristotle's use of substance terms in the way that you've described?
2: Yeah, this is also a difficult question because actually as long as we confine ourselves to what is called the esoteric syllogistic, which is the syllogistic which is concerned with non-modal statements like every A is a B and every C is a B, as long as we are concerned with these non-modal sentences it is actually quite hard to see what the significance is of these non extensional features of Aristotle's sentences which I claim uh, there to be. But when we turn to the modal syllogistic, I mean, after Aristotle has specified or developed his esoteric non-modal syllogistic, Aristotle also develops an even more complex system of modal syllogistic where he is concerned with modally qualified sentences. So he not just considers sentences of the type every B is an A but he also considers sentences of the type every B necessarily is an A, or every B possibly is an A, or some Bs possibly are an A, or no A necessarily is an A, and so on. So he considers such uh, modally qualified sentences, and he goes again on to study inferences which consist of these modally qualified sentences. And I think when we turn to the modus logistic, these non-extensional features, depending on the distinction between substance terms and non-substance terms, become more significant. For example, one of Aristotle's main claims in the modal Syllogistic is that the following pattern of inference is valid, namely, if every c, in fact, is a b, and if every b necessarily is an a, then it follows from this that every c necessarily is an a. So, although the one premise, every c is a b, is just an esoteric non-modal premise, the conclusion of this pattern of inference is a necessity proposition. So we can infer every c necessarily is an a from the two sentences, every c is in fact a b, and the modally qualified premise every B necessarily is an A. Now, this is one of Aristotle's main claims in the modal syllogistic, but this claim that this inference is valid was already denied by some of Aristotle's pupils, um, in particular by Theophrastus. Theophrastus said, no, Aristotle, this pattern of inference can't be valid, because I have a counterexample to it, and one of Theophrastus' counterexamples is as follows, everything walking is a man, Every man necessarily is an animal. Therefore, if your inference were valid, we could infer that everything walking necessarily is an animal. By this counterexample, Theophrastus took himself to prove that Aristotle's pattern of inference is invalid. But of course, what Theophrastus is doing in this counterexample is that he used a premise of the form everything walking is a man. Just because, you know, under some circumstances it might happen that every individual which is walking turns out to be a man, as Matt described before. So if the truth conditions of his even non-modal sentences were purely extensional, depending only on the set of individuals which fall under terms, then this premise which Theophrastus uses in his counterexample could be true in at least some contexts, and we would have very good counterexamples to some inferences which Aristotle claims to be valid in the modal syllogistic. It is in cases like these in the modal syllogistic, I think, that the claim that even the semantics of Aristotle's esoteric, that is, non-modal sentences, is not just purely extensional, that this claim becomes significant because it can help us To rule out certain count examples to inferences which Aristotle takes to be valid and thereby to understand why Aristotle took these inferences to be valid, these modal inferences in his modal Mm -hmm. syllogistic. So the answer, I mean coming back to your question, is that really in the esoteric syllogistic the claim which I make is not very significant. I mean it's not easy to see why this claim should be true in the esoteric syllogistic because of course the Phrygian reconstruction yields a semantics for the esoteric syllogistic, which is more or less in accordance with Aristotle's claims in the esoteric syllogistic, except for this um, little of well-known problem of existential import, which we get. uh, So this is the only problem which Frege or the Fregean way of thinking about Aristotle's sentences has when we confine ourselves to the esoteric syllogistic. And there are several ways of solving this problem of existential input. So, as long as we confine ourselves to the esoteric syllogistic, it really looks as if Frege's way of understanding aerosol synthesis is more or less okay, except for this problem of existential input. But when we turn to the modal syllogistic, then it becomes more obvious that the truth conditions, even of the esoteric synthesis, can't be just extensional.
0: So do you think this idea of Aristotle's that claims like every A is a B depend for their meaning on more than just whether each individual A happens to be a B? Um, Do you think that idea has any consequences for the way we think about possibility or necessity or any of these ideas?
2: I think it can have some such consequences. One of them may be that... Once we specify the semantics of Aristotle's esoteric and also modal propositions in terms of his theory of predications, that is, if we base their truth conditions on Aristotle's theory of predication, which in turn is based on the distinction between substance terms and non-substance terms, and which is also based on a distinction between essential predication and purely accidental predication, once we do this, we might find a semantic interpretation not only of his esoteric syllogistic, but also of his modal syllogistic just being based on this theory of predication, based on this distinction between substance and non-substance, and essential predication versus accidental predication. And if we succeed in, in having such an interpretation of Aristotle's modal syllogistic, then in effect what we have is a semantics for certain modal logic, namely Aristotle's modal logic, i.e. Aristotle's modal syllogistic, which does not appeal to anything like possible world semantics, but which just appeals to Aristotle's theory of predication based on these distinctions which we mentioned. And so this could help us to see how, at least in Aristotle's case, we can do modal logic without appealing to possible worlds, even if this modal logic is very different from the kind of modal logic which we find in the 20th century. I mean, a modal syllogistic obviously is very different from systems of modal logic which we find in the 20th century. But still, his modal syllogistic on this interpretation could help us to see how we can do modal logic without using the framework of possible world semantics.
0: So one very influential idea in contemporary logic has been that whenever you say such-and-such is necessarily the case, what you're saying is that in every possible world, such-and-such is the case. And this way of thinking about what it is for something to be necessarily the case has been really influential, really widespread. But maybe one of the lessons we can draw from Aristotle's modal syllogistic is that there are other ways of defining... What it is for something to be possibly the case versus necessarily the case, besides in terms of what's the case in alternate worlds other than the actual world that we live in now.
2: That's right. Yeah. And again, his theory of predication can help us to do this. So, for example, in the topics, he develops a theory of predication which is based on relations such as being a genus of, being a differentia of being a definition of, being an accident of, and so on. And some of these relations of predication Aristotle regards as essential predication, where the predicate specifies either the whole essence or part of the essence of the subject. So um, in a predication like man is an animal, obviously animal stands for a genus of the species man, so and in this sense it is an essential predication or to use one of Aristotle's stock examples by saying that man is biped. Aristotle regards biped as a specific differentia of the species man and in this sense as an essential uh, feature of the species man. So we could then try to tie the semantics of Aristotle's modal propositions, i.e. of propositions of the form every B necessarily is a, we could try to tie the truth conditions of these sentences to the relations of essential predication. We can then use the claims which Aristotle makes in the topics and in several other writings about the relation of essential predication to justify the claims which Aristotle makes in his modal syllogistic.
0: Marco Malink, thank you very much for
2: joining us. Thanks for having me here.
0: If you have any questions about this episode, you can post them to our blog at Lucian, that's L U C I A N dot slash blogs slash elucidations. On the blog you can get background information on the topics we covered and join in the discussion.